Before we get started, a content warning. Today's reading contains some somewhat graphic descriptions of childbirth, so if that's not something that you want to be listening to right now, you can skip ahead seven minutes from the start of the story, and you will miss all of that. Also, this episode contains some strong language. Listener discretion is advised. stories that didn't make it. I'm Hilary B. Bisnitz. Listeners, uh, if you have ever listened to an October episode of this show before, you may have an idea what's coming. Also, if you've listened to any of the promos from past episodes, but my guest today is none other than third serpent of Be the Serpent fame and author of the forthcoming A Marvelous Light, Freya Mosk. Freya, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. I love the idea that the serpents are recurring October specials, like some kind of spooky <laughs> phantom that just comes around every year. It's you are all very spooky redheaded authors. That's true. I've never been called spooky before, but I think it could grow on me. <laughs> I I didn't intend for it to be October specifically, but when I got Alex on the show in October of 2019, I was like, well, I bet I can get Macy next month, uh, next year. And then you had a book coming out and I was like, perfect. And now it's a thing. Collect yeah. the set. <laughs> so Freya, you're going to be reading to us out of one version of yourself at the speed of light. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. That's a short story of mine. All right. And is there anything we need to know about it before we get going? Yes. So I tend to be very verbose. And so even my short <laughs> stories are relatively long. So within the time constraints, uh, I'm just going to read the second half of this story. Fabulous. So what we need to go going in, uh, the main character is called Etienne. It's a science fiction story and he is a flippant junior doctor from a rich family who has <laughs> been working in a refugee camp in a war zone during basically an intergalactic war. And his evacuation ship has been captured by enemy forces. So he's now a prisoner on this ship. But we he's been summoned into Yes. But he has been summoned into a, a room where he's discovered that not only is one of the most senior admirals of the enemy side aboard this insignificant ship, which has actually now been detained in a space net by his quotation mark side, uh, this admiral is in labor. Ooh. And as Etienne is the only medical professional on board, he has been summoned to help. <laughs> and so far, he has managed to uneasily negotiate his own release in exchange for successfully delivering her twins, which he's in the middle of doing. So we are mid-childbirth. Fantastic. Welcome to the story. <laughs> All right. The first twin was born ten minutes later. A small, slimy thing with a strong cry that made something collapse in Etienne's chest with sheer relief. The first placenta came out quickly too, with minimal traction, and a gush of blood that caught Etienne everywhere from the knees down. Do you want to know how much these shoes cost? He said. 
He directed the question at the baby, as the person in the room least likely to shoot him. I may actually cry, just like you're doing. He checked the second twin's position, cephalic, thank God, but high enough to give them breathing space, before he realised that there were no nurses in the room to do the infant check. So he did that, too, moving on autopilot, feeling Kira's gaze burn between his scapulae. The boy's hands caught at his fingers, gripping. The tiny chest moved, sucking in the copper-piss air of the cabin. He always forgot how quickly they breathed, how small their feet were. Mm. Fine, he said at last. He looks fine, and delivered the baby, wrapped in a towel, onto Hess's chest. She wrestled her shirt all the way off, unselfconscious, so that she could gently manoeuvre him into position. I've done this before. Etienne wondered about her existing child. Children? He could see the lump where her broken clavicle had healed. Mm. One down. Hess said dryly once the baby had latched. She looked paler, calmer, more determined. A perfect time to test the twin paradox, said Etienne, mouth running with relief at the speed of thoughts and not sense. You could put this one on another ship right now, if, if it weren't for the net, of course, and have it travel faster than light, if that's something your research division has been squirreling away, and maybe he wouldn't have aged at all by the time number two. Make him shut up, Kira. <laughs> Kira pointed her gun at him lazily. It would be my... Etienne's body hurled sideways as though a string wrapped around him had been pulled suddenly taut. He landed hard and painfully on one hip, gasping. For a stretched-out, indignant moment, he thought Kira had actually shot him. But the sound had been larger than that, the boom and thundering force rocking the entire cabin, the entire ship. Hess was a tense, protective ball hunched around the baby, though at least she was still on the bed. Kira had been shaken off the edge of it and was now climbing to her feet. "'Ma'am!' An urgent pounding on the cabin hatch, which hummed open the next moment. The man had a captain's stripes, and won a prize for composure at how briefly he paused at the sight of his admiral naked and bloodied and breastfeeding. "'What happened, Halv?' Hess said, clipped. Her mouth thinned as another contraction hit. "'They're firing. We're evading, but—' Another blow rocked the ship, much less forceful this time. But—but but if the net was constricting, there was nowhere they could go.' "'Well,' said Kira, glaring at Etienne. Her voice cracked down the middle. "'Looks like your people decided to cut their losses.' "'Tell them there's an infant aboard,' Etienne blurted, panic blooming in his chest. He sat up on the floor. "'Multiple infants!' "'They've decided to kill hostages,' said Hess. "'What makes you think they'd care?' "'Then tell them—' "'Oh, Leon, I'm so sorry. "'Tell them there's a green dart aboard.' Hal, who had gone steely and indignant at Etienne's gall in contributing— let his jaw drop. Kira looked scornful as ever. Hess, however, gave a short laugh that was cut off with a grunt of pain. A nice idea for a bluff. They'll see through it. It's not a bluff. They'll know there's one in this sector, on that planet. They'll have lost track of him. A pause. Hess said, very hard and very still, Explain. Not all of the boys serving as our escort wanted me airlocked. One of them took a shine to me. Even exhausted, Etienne managed to cock his head provocative. See? Kira hmm. said, A green dart wouldn't reveal themselves to you. I'm sure they're trained to resist letting a piece of ass get under their guard. Her lip curled. Even an expensive one. Another shot. This one jerked them at an angle. Etienne fell, sprawling again. When he righted himself, he spoke as fast as he dared. Leon's not the dart, but he wanted to make me feel safe, I think. He wouldn't tell me who it was, but told me that one had been embedded with his squadron. He said not to worry, the dart would find a way to get information out, to make sure we were rescued soon. 
He was braced with his hands on the floor when the next shot came. At least the shield was holding. Etienne hadn't the slightest idea how long it would hold for. If it's true, ma'am, said Halth, they'll stop. They'll want to negotiate. Hess wiped her creased forehead. She adjusted the position of the feeding baby, whose complaining wail after the last shot had quieted as he latched back on again. They might wipe out a dart that we've got our hands on, said Kira. No, Hess said. Not if they think he won't talk. And I doubt this force has authorization for something like that. Darts are too valuable. They'll have to seek orders. Try it, she commanded Halv. There was a tense silence while they waited. It scratched at Etienne's throat until he had to say something, anything. I always wanted to be an identical twin. Two of you, said Kira. Unbearable. Your parents would have smothered you. Etienne cooked her a smile that felt off-centre. <laughs> They'd have loved it. One each in the divorce. No, I liked the idea that I wouldn't have to decide what to do with my life. I could be two things at once. That's not what... Hess shook her head. You can wind people up like a damn key, can't you? She muttered. If not a doctor, what else would you have been? Etienne flipped his hair. It did not want to flip. It wanted to tangle and flop greasily over his eye. Hideous. <laughs> An actor, obviously. Even more useless than a dilettante medic scoring points for his resume, sneered Kira. A real patriot you are. I'm not! Etienne spat it like pus from a boil. I don't give a shit about this war. I just want to go home and never set foot in another stinking camp full of people I can't help and taps that don't work and bread full of grit. This silence was busier. Hess shifted her hips and screwed up her eyes. She was pushing. He could recognize it by now. Half of Etienne was still braced for another shot to rock the ship. Captain Halve reappeared in the doorway. Relief and wariness warred for control of his face. Ma'am, he said. They said, prove it. Hess lifted her head. Her hair was plastered to the sides of her face. She said, cold as the tails of comets. They can wait. <laughs> the second twin was larger, Hess tall when his shoulders were passing through. Etienne massaged her belly until the bleeding slowed, then stitched the tear blind along a single tissue plane, with the only sutured material they had, which was non-dissolving. Someone would have to remove it later, but better a poor job than none at all. He dropped his gloves onto the floor when he was done. He couldn't see where the bin was. He didn't care. The smell of blood had been in his mouth for eternity. Done, he said. Done. Congratulations, ma'am, said a voice from behind him. It was Halth. Two boys? They look good. A tide of emotion was in Hess's voice. She'd been keeping it at bay until now. They're perfect. Kira said, you should sleep, Madeline. Hess looked as Etienne felt, as though someone had been draining her slowly. In her case, it was almost literally true. But her eyes were sharp sparks, dawn stars, in the wan creases of her face. Interrogate the escort force about the green dart, she told Captain Halth, one at a time. A salute so sharp it made Etienne's head hurt. Ma'am. Start with the one called Leon. Etienne felt a gurgle of guilt. Poor naive Leon, who was guilty of nothing more than being kind when he didn't have to be, and thinking <laughs> helplessly with his dick. <laughs> and this one? asked Halth. Admiral Hess looked at Etienne, then down at the babies. Etienne said, If you're going to kill me, please do it before I'm awake enough to care. <laughs> one of the twins made a thin, complaining sound muffled as he turned his face into his mother's chest. The silence felt like glass hovering over concrete. Put him on a shuttle, said Hess finally. He can explain himself to the net keepers. 
The keepers hailed Etienne by the time the net filled his view screen, an undulating green that seemed faintly unreal. But Etienne had been seeing prickles of light in his peripheral vision for the last hour. It was taking everything he had to remember the difference between thrust and yaw. <laughs> Asked for his designation, he managed only a yawn. Then he said, There are 59,013 species of tree in the botanic gardens on Jalapia. I uh, acknowledged, came back. <laughs> then a very long silence. Finally, a different voice said, This is the garden. Yes? Commander Court sounded as though she'd had as little sleep as him, but then she'd sounded like that since a week after the war started. Reporting, ma'am. Sorry it took me so long. Corell? All of the fatigue vanished from her voice. We'd nearly given you up. Did you, did you get? Yes, and I have some fresh information that may be of value as well, even if half of it's guesswork. I don't think Madeline Hess says anything she doesn't mean to, even in front of civilians. Hess? How does the saying go? Intelligence work is 50% boredom, 20% stupid luck, 30% getting placenta all over your shoes. I can't even start with the smell, by the way. I need you to imagine someone's put a raw steak out in the sun and seasoned it with, I am regretting your live status already, court cut in. Did you annoy your way off that ship? Believe me, that was the first thing I tried, Etienne said. The other 30% is affect, after all. He could almost hear her smile. So, you darts do retain some of the things you're taught. I'll catch you up when I arrive, provided my welcoming committee includes a spa treatment, a hairdresser, and a three-course meal, including fresh bread and a very large bed. A sigh. I can still tell the net keepers to blow you up, Corell. <laughs> yes, ma'am. But before his eyes, the shimmering green parted, and he let the angle of his wrist guide the shuttle through to the safe, swallowing dark beyond. Whew. <laughs> I love that. It is very, very on brand. Yeah, yeah. I, For some reason, I was like, you know what the short story world needs? More placenta. <laughs> I mean, I am I am not arguing with that, necessarily. I, <laughs> I have heard an awful lot about it in the last two years, as many of my friends have had children, so it wasn't... Shockingly out of place, and also you are a doctor. <laughs> yeah, I don't use my medical degree in my writing a lot, but this was one where I was like rubbing my hands together, being like, oh, here we go. Suturing <laughs> tissue planes, traction on the placenta. Yeah. I mean, you know, like, I, I feel like a lot of professions you would maybe expect that you would use it more, but... You know, for for me, like, I try to write good technology because I, like, that is my job, is doing technology. But I also am very conscious that the things that I would find interesting are probably exceedingly boring. Yeah, mostly I just try and make sure that when I write injuries, they're not too inauthentic. Mm -hmm. But whereas on, on the technology side of things, my idea of science fiction is we're on a ship, it's in space. Yeah, I mean that is the extent of my knowledge. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Yeah, I'm I'm a computer engineer, not a rocket engineer, so uh yeah, I I was I was gonna say, I mean it I like being able to write accurate injuries would probably make your hurt comfort work a lot better. Oh, you would be surprised. <laughs> I think I have this tendency to over injure because I like writing gory injuries and uh. then I'll come out and be like, oh, well, now they've been in this adrenaline-pumping, like, death or life situation. 
time for a sex scene. And my, my poor agent has to keep saying, Freya, you can't have them have a sex scene. They are, <laughs> they are injured. Somebody is missing fingers. Somebody else is bleeding. <laughs> it's not sexy. I'm sorry. So then I have to grumble and like wind back the injuries enough. <laughs> wind it back enough that it still makes sense to have the sex scene because you're not taking the sex scene out. No, no, the sex scene's staying, so the injuries have to be downgraded. <laughs> let's let's keep the priorities straight here. <laughs> if nothing else on this podcast is straight, at least the priorities are. Ka-ching. Very good. <laughs> um, so, I was saying a little bit... I don't remember if I was saying that before or after we started recording. Time is so fake... But one of the reasons that I was excited to have you here was that you have a new book coming out, which yes. it has kissing in it and also is science fiction. Uh, and I would love to hear a little bit about A Marvelous Light. So A Marvelous Light is much less science fictional than that story was. It's interesting. I chose this story because <laughs> it is one of the few sort of trunk things I have sitting around, but I don't write a lot of sci-fi sci-fi i'm much more mm. in the fantasy side of, of science fiction and fantasy uh, so a marvelous light is a historical fantasy set in a real time period in a real place so it's set in england in 1908 oh, but cool. it is a fantasy in that it is also about magic and magicians and curses and visions and a magical conspiracy and we love magic, to see it and magical houses that have significant opinions that they will express so Yes, my short pitch for it is that it is a queer historical fantasy about magicians, murder, and manor house parties. And if those sound like things that you enjoy, you'll probably enjoy this book. Uh, listeners, I mean, I don't know that I can sell you any better on it than Freya did just now. But if you like... I, I would say if you liked C.L. Polk's The Kingston Cycle, you will definitely like this. Yes, it definitely has a lot in common in terms of the underlying aesthetic. So the Kingston Cycle is definitely a secondary world that is heavily inspired by Edwardian mm-hmm. England. This one is more straightforwardly Edwardian England. Uh, but yeah, we're doing some fairly similar things in terms of that mixture of magic and familiar historical setting. And of course, they both have queer love stories in them as well. Though mine is, yes, slightly heavier on the sex scenes. <laughs> <laughs> Yours is also notably pre-war as opposed to post-war. Yes. Yeah, that was a very deliberate decision. If you're working that in that area of history in England, you basically have to decide, is this pre-World War One? is it World War One, or is it just post? Because right. the, the societal focus is so different and there was so much of a shift in what was happening in the society around that time, depending on where you, where you stand in regards to the war. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how many people you knew who lost, who you lost in the war. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So this is a society that is teetering on the edge of something. And I make some references in the book to some of the magicians, because of magic reasons, know that there is something big on the horizon. Mm-hmm. So it influences their priorities and their motives, but they don't yet know what it's going to be. Very cool. Uh so one of the other things that I would be remiss if I didn't bring up, uh, and especially now because it is almost coming to an end, we cry, is Be the Serpent, which is, I imagine, where many listeners already know you from. Um, and 
you know, we've we've talked previously on this show with uh, Alex and with Macy about sort of how that show came about, but I wonder if you can talk a little bit about sort of bringing something that has been, you know, this huge thing for years and years and years now to a close and, like, deciding to end a project like that, because I think that's something that, you know, whether or not it's a podcast is very close to a lot of listeners' hearts. Yeah, and I think obviously we could keep going on for a while. We are still enjoying ourselves. There is no shortage of tropes in science fiction, Mm -hmm. fantasy, and fan fiction that we could keep talking about. Uh, At the moment, it was a, a mixture of things, partly that we are all a little bit busier than we were when the podcast first started. Mm -hmm. Uh, Our careers writing-wise are in different places. We have other things going on in our lives. And as much as we love the podcast and love doing it, it is a a fairly extensive time commitment. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I don't do as much as Alex because they do all of the audio editing and things like that. But, you know, we plan, we choose our tentpole texts, we have to read them, we have to make notes on them. So it feels like every fortnight we are writing a, mm-hmm. an essay where we are synthesizing the themes of three texts. And I didn't do an arts degree. I did a science degree followed by a medical <laughs> degree. I'm not used to being asked to write a paper every two weeks. Fair enough. Uh, fair so enough. as much fun as it is and as much as we enjoy doing it, there is a, a fair amount of what we call pod- podcast homework. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... While we could certainly keep doing it, I think we have realized that it's a good idea to quit while we are still fresh, while we're still coming up with new things and still enjoying ourselves, Mm -hmm. but would like to move on to do other things. Yeah. And I mean, that is, uh, like, all of those are great points. And I think it's something that, like, you know, audiences can tell when the creators aren't having fun anymore. And it's really nice to be able to send the show off on this high note of, like, we still love this, we can't do it for these reasons. Mm, and uh, we, we started talking ages and ages ago about what our sort of retirement planning, in quotation mm-hmm. marks, would be. Um, and we realized that the, 100 episode, the 100th episode was going to line up very neatly with the end of this year. Uh, and I so mean, we thought... That would be a very good place yeah. to end it. Uh, that... But, you know, it's, it's been fantastic. We've done you know, th- these three... Oh, God, how long has it been going? Three, four years? Four, <laughs> Time has like no meaning. Years. Almost Time four years. Time is completely fake. Time has completely lost meaning, especially in the last two years. Yeah. Um, you know, we have, that, we have a handful of Hugo nominations, which has been absolutely amazing. Like, you know, if nothing else, it gave me the opportunity to go to Worldcon and be mm-hmm. part of the Hugo ceremony. And it's obviously given me two very good friends and the ability to bullshit at short notice about tropes, <laughs> which is very useful. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's Especially maybe, I think... once in-person things become a thing again, because bullshitting on short notice is what panels are. Yes, the first time I was invited to do a panel, I was... Very scared. You know, I was a baby author. Nobody knew me. I had nothing published. And I was being invited to an Australian convention to be Mm -hmm. on a panel with one of the authors I most admired in the world. And I just sort of, I was like, well, okay, I'll just, I'll just sit quietly in the corner. 
I did not sit quietly in the corner. I am a bit of a natural loudmouth. So it was fine once we got started. But certainly doing the podcast has made me a lot more comfortable doing panels and doing other podcasts as well. So when it mm-hmm. came time to talk about promotion and marketing for my book, it was great to be able to talk to my marketing team and say, you can put me on any podcast. I'm very used to it by now. Yeah. Yeah, there's, uh, you know, it's very good that I got used to the sound of my own voice quickly when I started this show, because otherwise I don't think I could have continued it. Yeah, and just complete loss of self-consciousness when it comes to sitting in a room saying something over and over again. Yeah, yeah. And for about half the year, sweating profusely while doing so. Uh, I mean, I don't know if we're talking about like nerves or weather, but it is frequently quite hilarious because we'll see each other's faces on the screens when we're recording the podcast. Alex and Macy will be tank tops, enormous (laughs) glasses of ice, flopping around under a fan, and I'll be wearing this kind of jumper, possibly some sort of hat and scarf, and I'll be complaining because I have to turn the heater off so it doesn't interfere with the recording. Yes. (laughs) I, I mean, I had to turn the ceiling fan off and apparently didn't do that, so... Mm, audio quality, what... who even cares? Alex uh, cares. <laughs> I don't care quite as much as Alex. Don't yeah. tell them. <laughs> I, I, I learned about half a year into the show to let some things go because it's easier... You know, you talk about the podcast homework and, like, I do an interview format show, so my... Homework is more booking guests and, like, sporadic communication Mm -hmm. uh, than, you know, obviously I have the editing to do, but it's a a lot less of a lift. But even so, you know, it it was one of those things. Being the person to do the interviewing, you do have to come up with the content. Yeah, that's true. Being interviewed is slightly more of a reactive process. Yeah. Yeah, the first time I, I... turned the tables on myself and, and had my friend uh, Sharon Shu interview me, I was like, oh, this is this is a lot easier in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah, you're just sitting in the passenger seat, nodding along and occasionally saying something. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's... I don't know where that thought was going. Next thought. <laughs> Next thought. Um, so one of the things that uh, I've talked about on the show before, but I think that you are extremely qualified to talk about is how writing fanfic affects your... Uh, I don't want to say normal writing, because fanfic writing is normal writing. It's all writing, but your commercial writing, I will say. Mm. In terms of effect, all I can say is that the only reason that I have been as successful as quickly as I have been with my original novels is because I had written at least a million words of fan fiction Mm -hmm. in the 15 years before I actually wrote an original novel. So it has a lot to do do with the quality of my writing at the moment. You know, I I taught myself to write by writing fan fiction. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah, and it is also like... I I have not I have not written a whole lot of fan fiction that has gone up on AO3 but the just steady trickle of 
kudos coming in is always a nice, like, if you're feeling hopeless about your writing, you can go and see, like, oh, I have, you know, 500 kudos on this story, and more trickle in every week. Like, clearly my writing's all right, because people like it. Yes, I have to say, I still get quite a lot of comments every week in my inbox for often quite old fanfic, and it's always the same little jolt of joy when you see something arrive in your inbox and go, oh, somebody's read something that I like. Because mm-hmm. uh, obviously in in the fanfic world, there is that constant validation if you're posting something, oh, a stream of comments. Yeah. You know, and there's the understanding that by posting it, you are opening yourself to comments mm-hmm. uh, and that people are going to express their appreciation and tell you what they liked about it, which is quite a different vibe to professional publishing where... You know, people will tag you in positive reviews, but you are not expected as an author to be entering into conversation with the people mm-hmm. who have read read what you've written. And you are not expected to go and seek out reviews or read the comments. Right. <laughs> and so... And, fa- yes. You know, <laughs> so- and that, like, because fanfic is different than reviews of professional fiction... Mm. there is a whole lot more sand pits that you can fall into. Uh, and, you know, which we see pretty much like clockwork every six months. Somebody is, like, going off on Goodreads reviews or something else where, uh, you know, there there are appropriate ways to engage as an author and there are inappropriate ways to engage as an author. And And knowing how not to stick your foot in it is, uh, I think, vital. Yes, they are completely different contexts. Fandom is not professional writing on a context level, even if the writing can be of a very equivalent level and and often is. Mm-hmm. You know, there is some absolutely sublime fan fiction out there, but it is written for a different purpose and the expectations of interaction are, are totally different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, it's... I don't think that somebody could be anti-fanfic and have listened to this show for this long or, you know, be tuning in especially to hear this episode with you on it, but it's it's always really important to me to say, like, yeah, fanfic is real, it's important, like, it's not, you know, just crap writing, like, there's, there is crap writing in fanfic, but there's crap writing in published commercial fiction as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah. I mean, I, the kind of fan fiction that I wrote was always just, what is the story that I want to read? Mm-hmm. And that's my attitude when it comes to writing original fiction as well. Mm-hmm. And it can be quite nice to go back and because I wrote things that I wanted to read, I frequently reread my own fanfic as just a, oh, here's a nice story about some characters yeah. using tropes that I really like, told in a way that makes sense for me. Brilliant. Yeah. Thank you to the past person who wrote this. And that can be a little bit of a boost as well when you're stuck in the revision minds of something long, mm-hmm. something original that was harder to write and flowed much less smoothly and you're convinced that you're breaking it in this revision and it will never be the same again. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Taking a little break and just reading a short, self-contained piece of writing that you are still proud of, that, I think, can be really useful to help you rediscover the joy. Like, why are you you writing in the first place? 
you know, given that like any good millennial, I have managed to monetize my primary hobby. <laughs> I think it is good for my soul and my sense of proportion to look back at the the writing that was very, very much just for fun, just for joy, mm-hmm. just for myself and for other people in fandom. And I, I hope that I continue to keep writing fanfic. I've still got a few that are on the go, though, <laughs> obviously, with how busy things are at the moment with coming up to right. my debut and I'm revising the second book and I'm outlining the third book and I've got a couple of other projects on the burner as well. Fan fiction has very sadly fallen by the wayside in the last year or so, but it still happens. I still watch a show or watch a movie or read a book and, and have that spark of, mm-hmm. I want to be in conversation with this in a creative way. And I really hope I don't lose that. Yeah. And obviously I hope that I spark that in other people as well. I'm never going to read the fan fiction that people would write of my own works, but it will make me immensely pleased just to open AO3 and see it as a fandom category. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's some serious uh, writer bingo square right there, mm-hmm. is getting your, you know, maybe your favorite pairing from your own work, maybe a pairing you wouldn't have even excited. Yes, uh, like, I want the of. crack side pairings. That's what I want. <laughs> I want people to look at it and go, well, hmm, okay, she's already written all the sex scenes, but we could write <laughs> some more. And then we could add in a third character. And, hmm, okay, well, what if this relationship, though? I mean, that's what fan fiction is for. What if Space Station AU... Yes. <laughs> uh, I mean... Yeah, yeah, it will definitely bring me joy to know that the fan fiction exists, even if I can't, even if I can't read it. Yeah. And it, it's also, like, fan fiction is... I, I don't remember... I heard years ago, I think, on a, another writing podcast, I can't remember which one, one of the one of the panelists was talking about how when they get stuck on their main, like, for-work writing, that they would just go, like, work on something completely different and, like, write a bad poem or something. And, like, writing fanfiction is, I think, a great option for that because, you know, you don't, like so much of the heavy lifting has been done because you don't have to establish who the characters are. Like, and you get to, if you want to, you get to just be, like, deeply indulgent. Mm. And you can throw it up on AO3, you can just keep it on your hard drive forever and never show it to anybody, but, like, it's something that stretches those muscles when you're feeling, like you said, like, oh, what am I going to do? Am I going to break this? Mm. And I think of the, all the years that I spent writing mostly fan fiction, I was writing some original short things as well, but mostly fan fiction. I think of those as a long period of strength training where mm-hmm. you start with just, as you say, a lot of the heavy lifting has been done. Here are the characters. Here's the world building. All you have to do is write the story. Mm-hmm. And so you can focus on things like what's my prose style? What kind of tropes do I like writing about? Um, am I learning how to capture voice in a way that is relatively easy because somebody else has done the voice production for me? I'm just learning to hone my ear for how characters speak and how dialogue mm-hmm. works. And like learning to become a good mimic of a style, I think, is just as useful for a writer as it is for an artist. Yeah. And so then as I kept writing and kept writing, I got better at longer works. So I learned how to structure and to pace 
something that was not quite novel length, but getting up at mm-hmm. novel length, I discovered that I was more interested in thoughtfully applying romance structures. I learned how to write sex scenes and porn. Mm-hmm. I learned that I was starting to do much more AUs where I was creating most of the world building myself. Mm-hmm. And so it got to a point where I was building up a lot of different muscles. And I finally looked at myself and thought, I think I now have enough balance in all of these muscles that I can go and try to write an original novel. Yeah. And so for me now, having written, I think, what am I on? I think I'm on my seventh original (laughs) novel that I'm working on, outlining at the moment, having written six. When I do feel that I'm weighed down and I'm wading through water trying to work on something because, you know, sometimes writing is joyful and easy and sometimes it is wading through mud. Mm-hmm. Getting, writing fan fiction is like getting out of the pool and being back on dry land. Suddenly mm-hmm. half the resistance is gone and you can just concentrate on, let's create some nice metaphors. Let's draw on people's feelings. Let's do a five <laughs> things fic. Yeah. Because you you have the muscles now. So going stepping back into fan fiction is relieving some of the pressure mm-hmm. and reminding you what the fun parts are. Yeah. It's it's interesting uh, that you mentioned, like, learning to mimic things that, like, that's something that's never, like, been articulated in a way that my brain picked it up before, but um, is is really something that's, like, so vital when like especially as I think as a working writer if you are having to return to a piece and like do major edits major revisions you know at the the pace that publishing goes it might be like a year between when you send a manuscript off and get it acquired and when you're actually like working on it again Mm. in that way and being able to to mimic your own style, to, like, just quickly pick up again, like, oh, this is how this character talks. And that's that's what is difficult about drafting something for the first time is because you haven't got those character voices solid in your head. It usually takes me about two-thirds of the first draft Mm -hmm. to actually feel that I can write a character consistently. And often my first revision, at least one of the character arcs, will have gone wrong from the way I thought it was going to go in my outline. And so I have to go back and I've got more of a sense of this character's interests and where they're coming from mm-hmm. and the way that they phrase things in their head. Whereas when I was writing fan fiction, there's a certain amount of literary mimic, but also because I was mostly writing for TV shows and movies, I could mm-hmm. develop my own prose style while slotting in characters who had very strong voices. And I think this came most clearly for me when I was writing a Brooklyn Nine-Nine mm. fanfic which was heaps of fun. I was playing with some romance tropes I really liked, but that is a show that has such a strong ensemble of individual character voices. Like mm-hmm. They're not quite stereotypes, but they are so distinct. And yeah. writing that was an exercise in, if I was imagining this scene, what would, what would actually be happening? What would these characters say? How would they phrase it? How would they be interacting? And because I'd watched six seasons of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, mm-hmm. it was so easy for me to think, okay, I know how to do this. Yeah, and, and that was one of the most consistent comments I got on that fic was that it felt like an episode, like all the character voices came through. And that is actually much more of a testament to the strength of the writing of that show, I mm-hmm. think. 
And so I can see why writers enjoy long series with the same protagonist or using the same characters in multiple books because there is such a comfort to feel that you are slipping back into the world mm-hmm. of a character whose voice you know. Yeah. And every, every time I've written a book, all of the ones that I've written so far, they've all had at least two point of view characters. I've only written one with three, mm-hmm. but they've always been different every time. And so there is that trudging through mud a little bit. And I love the process of discovery and learning more about characters and inventing them from scratch. But it can be quite tough going when you're doing it for the first time because you haven't got that instinctual grasp of who this person is and how their narrative voice works. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, you've also got to do your world building and everything else that, you know, with fanfic... Unless you're doing an extreme AU, is already there. Mm. And I have a lot of admiration for people who do the high fantasy intensive world building. When I was younger, in my teens, I thought that was the kind of fantasy that I really wanted to write. And I fell into that trap of build the Mm -hmm. world intensively and then writing the story will be easy. And then I realized, no, all that, all that means is that you end up with pages and pages of lists of kingdoms and flags and... You know, names of rulers and how does the magic system work? And that's not what a story is. Yeah. A story is emotional investment. And fanfic teaches you that because people are bringing their emotional investment to the page. Like mm-hmm. they are giving you the benefit of the doubt. You're writing about people that we love. Great. Go. Uh, and so when I actually did start writing more seriously in my late twenties, trying to write original novels, I had realized that actually the world building was fun and I liked doing it as I go along, but mm-hmm. it was no longer something that I found fulfilling in and of itself. And mm-hmm. so given that my the trilogy that I, is starting with A Marvelous Light is historical fiction, it didn't feel quite the same as fanfic, but there was a little bit of an element of that, whereas I just did a bit of research into Edwardian England enough to feel that I had a grasp on the aesthetic. So it felt like I was walking into someone else's world And then Mm -hmm. just writing a fusion with a magical world that I could come up with myself. Right. So I wasn't having to just start with a blank page and create the universe. I was starting with a pre-existing universe that I had done a reasonable amount of research on. And then wandering in with my buckets of paint and adding shit. Yeah. And uh, I am going to have a hot take here, which is that... uh, Historical fiction, especially, like, historical fantasy or, you know, urban fantasy, all of those things are just AUs. You don't have to do the full world building. You can say, okay, what if late 19th century Europe, but everybody has airships? Or, Mm. you know. Yeah, exactly. And what what if the Cold War, but... Instead of actual atomic bombs, it is people who are weapons. Yeah, and a reader, I think, even in science fiction and fantasy, where readers are very used to doing a lot of work themselves, like filling Mm -hmm. in a lot of the imagination gaps, giving you a lot of benefit of the doubt when it comes to unfamiliar terms, it is harder work for a reader to be introduced to something that is entirely new. I think Mm -hmm. a lot of us who are in science fiction and fantasy find it very fulfilling to be given that kind of reading challenge and reading experience. And as I said, I really admire the people who can do it. But also, readers like there to be a familiar hook. 
Mm-hmm. They'd like there to be something there that they recognize, whether that is a character archetype to be told in advance, here's the trope I'm doing so they can go, okay, I know the basic shape of this skeleton. Now mm-hmm. let me enjoy the new flesh that has been put on these bones. And so for historical fantasy, the familiar hook is, well, here's a setting that you may know something about already. There is something here that's familiar. Now let me pivot and show you all of what's new. Mm-hmm. And here are some characters you've never met before, uh, but because you're already familiar with the background, you're not constantly having to absorb new words, new terms. You can put your focus on learning these characters, which is what mm-hmm. I want. I want everyone's focus to be on the characters and their internal lives and their relationship uh, as yeah. they walk through this world. Which, you know, of course isn't to say that that can't be the focus in, you know, fully world-built, totally original things, Um Oh god, no, no! But, some of some like, of the best books I've read in the last few years have balanced that world building and character work incredibly well. Mm-hmm. the The first thing that jumped to mind for me was uh, Yoon Ha Lee's Machineries of Empire, which, like, the first chapter of Nine Fox Gambit, just like dumps you in and says, "Okay, hold on," and yes. it oh, ends it's, up it's a- being this. It's incredible, and I, like, I can tell why some people would bounce off that, but I adored it. I had such a great time. It's so um, good. And then there are people like um, like Arkady Martin's uh, Memory Called Empire, I think, also does an incredible job of world-building and character work sort of woven mm-hmm. together. And at the moment, yeah, my comfort zone is much more in you know 70% character work, 30% world-building. But yeah. I still think of myself as someone who's very much an early career writer. I'm still building a lot of those muscles. Mm-hmm. And one day I would like to write something that has much more expansive and creative world building. I've got a few ideas that I think would benefit from that. But I'm taking it one step at a time. I want to feel that I have mastered the kind of books that I'm writing now. Right. And then I'm sure I'll, I'll say, okay, great. What's the next challenge? Now I'll try I something mean, that's a little bit more And the ambitious. good news is you have a trilogy. So. Yes, I have a trilogy. And I'm sure, like, as I get through the trilogy, I do have to keep adding in more magical world building, and the plot is getting larger mm-hmm. as we go along. The plot in, in A Marvelous Light, there is a self-contained plot, there is a mm-hmm. self-contained romance, uh, and it leaves us at a place where we have a natural pause point, a happy ending for the couple, and a promise of we're on the verge of something a little bit bigger. Mm-hmm. And book two, which I am revising at the moment is a little bit more chaotic and it says, (laughs) right, well, now we're in the thick of things. Let's find out a bit more about the plot. And it it also has a self-contained sort of, you know, murder mystery quest narrative within it. It has a self-contained romance within it that has a slightly different vibe to the one in book one. Mm -hmm. And then book three is going to do the same thing, but it will be a little bit more of an ensemble because by that stage I have now set up far more Mm -hmm. characters who are involved um, you know a lot more about the world and the plot. And so it will very much be a starting up on a different point and just go downhill mm-hmm. towards the finish line. Nice. So uh, as we're looking towards the future in that regard, I just heard this weird noise and a blue police telephone box showed up. And I'm wondering if we could step into this time machine here and uh, take a step back and talk to young, earlier even career Freya about some of the things that you maybe wish you had known then, or advice that 
if you saw somebody walking down the street tomorrow, I mean, you know, COVID times, but if if it were safe to go outside and you saw somebody walking down the street tomorrow who reminded you of young Freya, what would you say to them? I think keep finishing things. And that was what I learned from fan fiction more than anything else. It was you're not going to get anywhere unless you've finished a thing. It doesn't... Mm -hmm. like, And it, this is not for everybody. Some people, I think, can really enjoy... You know, they'll start something, they'll get halfway through and go, mm, that wasn't for me. Or <laughs> they'll write it and go, well, I wrote that just for me. I don't think anybody else needs to see it. Mm -hmm. But for me, with that lovely, lovely validation of posting <laughs> things and getting nice, nice comments, that you can't get that if you don't finish things and put them out there in mm -hmm. fan fiction. And so... That did teach me when I sat down to write a novel, I thought, well, you know, the only thing that you can do is just go until you stop. Mm -hmm. So I think I'm quite pleased with the journey that I have. I wouldn't tell my younger self to change it. I'd maybe ask her to start <laughs> experimenting with some longer original stuff a bit earlier, just in case she wanted to get mm -hmm. going a few years sooner. But I was, you know, she was quite busy. She had medical school and things to do. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, definitely learn to finish things would be my my main one. Get a little bit more comfortable with the first draft not being perfect. Mm -hmm. I'm a pretty clean drafter in general, uh, mm -hmm. but I as I write more books and as I try different things and as I do become a bit more adventurous, the amount of editing that I have to do in my subsequent revision round has become a little bit more extensive. Uh, mm -hmm. And of course, I have been dragged kicking and screaming into that by my agent and my editor, whining the entire way because I hate editing, but it's very good for me. So mm -hmm. I'm learning to do it. Uh, and I think they go hand in hand. Like You will only finish something if you can let go of your paralyzing conviction that the first draft has to be ideal. Mm -hmm. So just I mean, start, you just beat write, me to saying go. that. <laughs> yep. Um, I think don't be afraid of outlining would mm -hmm. be another one. Again, this is a very much specific advice for me uh, because I was working entirely instinctually for the first mm -hmm. decade of writing. And once I stopped and realized, okay, if I want to write something that's more than 50,000 words, you do actually have to come up with an outline and here is how story beats work and here's how a romance yeah. structure works. And I have discovered that writing an outline relatively thoroughly is how I get started. Mm -hmm. If I start with a blank page, I will never go anywhere. I need to know here are all the lovely soothing dot points leading yeah. me down towards the end. Yeah. 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 I feel you very strongly on that because when I started, I, I you know, picked up fan fiction relatively late in life as something to, to write myself, but uh, other than like, you know, reading sword and sorcery books that are obviously all fan fiction of earlier sword and sorcery books. But uh, when I started writing with the intent to publish, it was very much, you know, it was all short stories and it was very instinctual. It was very like, I know where I'm starting. I know where I want to go, but I'm not, I'm just going to like walk in a line, close my eyes, walk in a line and, and trust that I get there. And there are some writers for whom that is the only way they can do it and retain the joy. Like, mm -hmm. I do know quite a few people who, for whom writing an outline is pinning the butterfly to the page and killing it. 
Yeah. And that's just, that doesn't work for them. So I think a lot of the advice I'd give to my younger self would just be, here's the stuff that you're going to discover through Mm -hmm. trial and error. But at the same time, if I didn't get that trial and error and I didn't get that 15 years of learning what kind of writer I am, I don't think it works that way. I don't think you can be shortcutted into knowing your own style. There's, you mm-hmm. can only learn it by discovering it. Yeah. But I guess yeah. the only thing I would say is, I suppose anything else I would say is, even if you do want to start writing original stuff earlier, stay in fandom. Like all mm-hmm. of the friends that I've made in writing communities, most of the contacts when I was starting out in the publishing industry came from friends I had made in fandom. Like I got into mm-hmm. Australian science fiction and fantasy world because uh, some friends I'd made in Battlestar Galactica fandom were <laughs> part of that world and introduced me to other Australian writers. And, you know, I met Macy on Tumblr mm-hmm. at a time when both of us were writing original short stories and became critique partners. And luckily, you know, I'd been writing for long enough and I'd met people who were around my age when I was in my late teens and we just wrote fan fiction together and stayed in each other's fandom orbits for over a decade. Mm-hmm. And then there came a time when it seemed like all of us were slowly turning around and going, oh, maybe maybe we'll write some original things as well. <laughs> and so I had this inbuilt group of people who I knew very well, whose writing style I liked, who I trusted. Then we kind of grew together. Mm-hmm. And then we could share stories about how does, how does querying work? You know, what right. kind of zines are you submitting to? Um, would you like to read my manuscript? Because I trust your feedback because we've been critiquing each other's fan fiction for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And so I came at it with a pre-existing community that just began to overlap very naturally with the publishing professional community. Very cool. Uh, solid advice. I mean, yeah, not, not everybody's going to... For the person who right now wants to know, how do I get started? Me saying, well, spend 15 years in fandom is possibly not what they yeah. need to hear. <laughs> But I think I think the advice around finding people who are around the same level as you, with mm-hmm. similar aspirations to you, whose advice you trust because you admire their writing, that yeah. is a great place to start. It means that you've got people that you can commiserate with and share tips with and grow with, and you do learn a lot about writing by critiquing other people. Yeah. It's just a matter of deciding whether you have the bandwidth to do that as well as write your own things. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and like, there are some writers I can think of who, you know, never critique other people's work because they feel like all they can say is, yes, good, I like it. Uh, and, you know, that's, that is also fine and valid. And, you know, every, one size never fits all. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like any writing advice that I give... I want people to treat like I treat all writing advice that I hear or read, which is take the bits that work for you and discard everything else. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. no, I think there is nobody in the world and no writer in the world who can give writing advice that will work for everybody. There is no such thing as the universal secret. Mm-hmm. So if, if you find the gems that you like, then collect them up in a little hoard and use them. <laughs> and if you hear something and go, mm, that person is coming from a completely different place to me or... I've tried that. That doesn't work. Kick it in the bin. Yep. <laughs> no shame. Yeah. Oh, good stuff. So uh, we've already talked about A Marvelous Light, mm-hmm. uh, but is there anything else that you are excited about uh, that you want to share from 
your own work, and then is there anything that you have, any media that you have read recently, uh, or otherwise consumed TV, fanfic, books, whatever, that you are really excited about telling other people about? Oh no. You know when you ask that question, somebody's brain just goes completely white noise and you forget oh, yeah. everything you've ever read. I've read over a hundred books so far this year. Can I now remember them? No. Um, okay, so starting with the first question, I think at the moment, the fact that A Marvelous Light is only a couple of months away from release, it is sort of taking over most of my excitement. But I'm mm -hmm. really, really, really pleased to be kicking off this trilogy and the excitement around the first book is keeping me motivated to work on the other two. I do have a couple of other things. There's something that I've just in the final stages of turning around with my agent at the moment that we're going to go on submission with soon. Uh, but you know, knowing publishing, I'll be able to talk about it in mm, two years. Yeah, give or take. <laughs> yeah, give or take. So yeah, other things are in the pipeline, but I will be excited about them when their time comes. And, okay, let me have a think. I think in terms of media that I am consuming at the moment, um, I'm really enjoying the second season of Ted Lasso, the first season nice. of which gave me enormous joy and comfort in the past <laughs> year or so, and I have made everybody that I know watch it and watched it many times, and I'm really enjoying the second season. I've never been a very sporty kind of person, and I would not have thought that I'd really enjoy a sports narrative, but mm -hmm. there it is. It's there a, it is. There it is. And it's doing so many clever things with character. I think if you want a masterclass in slow, deliberate character work done with very clear character voice and dialogue, amazing beats in terms of relationships, it's, it's just mm -hmm. such a good, it's such a well-written show in such a heartwarming, funny package. Fabulous. And books. Uh, the one that I keep been recommending to people a lot recently is Lee Mandelo's Summer Suns. Ooh. Which, every time I try and describe it to people, I just end up spitting out a long list of words. But it is <laughs> Southern American Gothic Dark Academia with Ghosts, Revenants, Fast Cars, and Bourbon, and Queer Repression. Oh my god, that is so much my jam. It is incredible. I, w I read it really, really fast. I think I, I all I'd heard was, oh, this is about cars and <laughs> the South and the sweltering summer. And I thought, well, this could be my jam. Let, let's find uh -huh. out. And I tore through it. It is such an incredible piece of writing. Again, the character work is so good, especially how much Lee manages to communicate about the person whose point of view you're in. Mm -hmm. while these things never quite rise to the top of that person's consciousness. And I love character work that is done in that way, when it's very clear to the reader what is going on, but the character hasn't quite clicked with mm -hmm. it yet. So from that point of view, very good. But also just the writing is so atmospheric. Some of the horror stuff is very creepy. The magic's very interesting. Yeah, I, I loved it. I would never be able to write something like that in a million years. It's so outside of my own experience and the kind of thing that I would come up with. But I just sank into it. It was fantastic. That's awesome. I'm, I am on uh, a weird atmospheric horror kick right now with uh, an actual play podcast that I'm listening to, uh, Friends at the Table, whose new season is... Uh, the introduction, the the GM, Austin Walker, talks about it as being 
very much influenced by uh, Hellboy and by Jeff Vandermeer's Annihilation, and so this sounds like also extremely my jam. Oh, and I'm going to do a second recommendation for a book, also by a writer called Lee, uh, and this Excellent. is an upcoming fantasy romance novel called Seducing the Sorcerer by Lee Ooh. Welch, which is a gay fantasy romance about cranky middle-aged people, which oh my I quite loved. And the way I've been selling this one is it's like if Howl's Moving Castle, instead of being about a sulky, flamboyant 20-something who mm-hmm. wants to be bossed around by a cute girl, <laughs> it is about a tired, stressed 40-something sorcerer who just wants to be taken in hand and given a rough seeing to by <laughs> the ex-groom who magically ends up at his magical tower with a weird magical horse. And it's got really like light, light touch of political and magical world building. Uh, And again, like immensely strong character work. The sex scenes are really hot. This, the, it's very much a horse girl book, but Mm -hmm. the horse girl is like a 45 year old man. And Uh just, I, I gulped it down. It was so delightful. I think people who enjoy T. Kingfisher's fantasies Mm -hmm. with that, have that strong sense of romance, but also a really strong sense of humor. Mm -hmm. Uh, would definitely enjoy this one fabulous well listeners as always links will be in the show notes to everything uh and please please do pre-order a marvelous light which comes out sometime in november december (laughs) 2nd of november in the states uh december in the uk and nebulous time yet to be determined in australia (laughs) fabulous uh, Freya, before we get going, where can our listeners find you elsewhere? Um, I'm probably most active on Twitter, and I'm at Freya Mask there. Uh, I'm also on Instagram. I must admit, I am not the most visually creative person <laughs> in the world, so occasionally you'll get a picture of a nice flower or a bird. Uh, but I do a lot of keeping track of um, other people and a lot of reposting things, and I'm very happy to interact with people on both Twitter and Instagram. And my, my website is freyamask.com. At the moment, it's mostly just updates and buy links and things like that. But all of my short stories are collected links on there. Fabulous. Freya, thank you again so, so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. I can uh, now snap my fingers and do something to podcasts. I don't know. I'm not a huge MCU person, but I feel like collecting all three serpents is in some way the podcasting equivalent of getting all the infinite infinity no I mean, it's, it's the proper literary trope and that's one of the things that i actually am doing in my in my trilogy is if you're going to collect a thing of power there's got to be three parts mm-hmm. because then you've got a trilogy you just have there one magical MacGuffin piece per book done uh fabulous thank you for being smarter than me <laughs> Thank you for having me on. It was really fun to revisit a story that I had almost forgotten about and to remember that, oh, I I do quite like writing sci-fi sometimes, as long as I can just fill it with snarky queer people. Excellent. I mean, you know, that's really, what more do we need in life? Uh, Listeners, look forward next month to uh, some snarky queer people on the show. Our guests will be Merck Fan Wolfmore and Nina Niskanen. Tales from the Trunk is mixed and produced in beautiful Oakland, California. 
Our theme music is Paper Wings by Ryan Boyd. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash trunkcast. All patrons of the show now get a sticker and logo button, along with show outtakes and other content that can't be found anywhere else. You can find the show on Twitter at trunkcast, and I tweet at HBBizniex. If you like the show, consider taking a moment to rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. And remember, don't self-reject. Reject.